Well, let's begin with the Word. Our sermon this morning is taken from John chapter 18, 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a cohort of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Let's pray. Father God, your word is magnificent, deep, rich, and powerful. And we ask that today you would bless my sermon here as I would speak your words, and you would use them to transform us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. It was a great privilege to bring you God's word today, and I want to begin with a disclaimer. What I had to share with you today comes primarily from the hard work and insights of others, wiser men. And I borrow from their content liberally, so please don't think any of this is original material. If it falls short, that's on me. If it's good, it's on somebody else. If God's word is food, and we are commanded to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, then I am no chef. I am just a guy who can reheat food in the microwave and plate that up for dinner. Today's New Testament reading was from John's account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's perfect because in this sermon, we are going to consider the crucifixion and the events leading up to it as told by the Apostle John in his gospel. Have you ever thought, I wish I had a time machine. I could go back and see some of the events in the gospel, the miracles, or especially the crucifixion itself. Because I certainly have. And I suspect that much of what drove that desire was the pathos, the intense emotion of the crucifixion that we see captured in biblical art and our Sunday hymns, because it was and it is a tremendously moving moment. And if I were to catalog the emotions that run through our hymns and art, there's usually a mixture of guilt, because he suffers when I deserve it, shame, because my sin put him there, and above all, pity, because he is helplessly nailed to a cross, in pain and innocent, and these emotions are not wrong. They fit the narrative we have in some of the Gospels. But what if you had a friend at Bible study who had the same thought, and he said, man, I really wish I could go back and see the crucifixion so I could see the Father glorify his Son. And when you say something like, whoa, hang on, what on earth are you talking about? If he said, well, you know, go back to see Jesus confound his enemies, watch him take charge of the whole situation in the garden, see him betrayed by his friend, flee Jerusalem, only to return in triumph like David before him. Watch him as he terrifies Pilate. See him exalted up onto the cross to draw all men to himself. See that perfect picture of him crushing the head of the giant just like his father David. You know, all that stuff. Well, you could be forgiven if your response was to ask if he was reading the apocryphal Gospel of James or perhaps Q, the mythical fifth gospel. But as disturbing as this might be to our mental models of the cross, he is not. If your friend were wishing to see those things, 
then he has not been reading the mythical fifth gospel. He has been reading the genuine fourth gospel, John's gospel. He's just been reading it and paying better attention to it than we have. In the other gospels, the perspective is mainly that Jesus' crucifixion was the low point of his time on earth. He was utterly humbled by a death that was not only horrific, but also designed to shame and humiliate the victim. He was abandoned on the cross to bear the sins of the world alone. He died, and three days later, after going through the valley of the shadow of death, he was raised from the dead, vindicated, and ascended into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. In that case, his incarnation and life follow a giant U shape, going down from the heights, coming from the heights of glory, down to the depths of humiliation, and back again to even greater glory. And that should all feel familiar, because it's biblical, and therefore it is true. But today we're going to meditate on the crucifixion and the events leading up to it as told by John, because he tells the same story from a second and a slightly different perspective in his gospel. His narrative is equally biblical, equally true, but not as intuitive or easy to grasp, because rather than a huge shape of glory, humiliation, and more glory, John presents Jesus' life as a series of exaltations that move from triumph to triumph in unbroken succession. Even the cross and the suffering, as we shall see, is portrayed by John as another exaltation. This feels strange and foreign to us, and that makes it all the more important for us to understand it better. When God's word tells us one thing, and our intuition and our hearts tell us another, well, our path is crystal clear. We need to understand what God is telling us through his word so we can change our understanding and intuitions, not the other way around. Now, to be clear, John is not contradicting the other Gospels. God's stories are deep and multifaceted. The same story can be told from multiple angles to draw out different truths from one narrative. And that's just one reason we have four Gospels instead of just one. As a quick side note, this is why reading fiction is so very important. Because when God communicates to us, he speaks in stories and poems and songs and parables. We need to be good at reading those. So, we're going to tackle this in three parts. First, we'll look at how John sets up these themes throughout the first half of his gospel. Secondly, we'll walk through his arrest at Gethsemane and see how this closely parallels a story in the in, uh, history of his father, King David. And finally, we'll end with his trial and crucifixion and meditate on what these things meant for John's audience and what they mean for us today. In John's gospel, Jesus says again and again that he is the one who is in charge. In the other Gospels, Jesus is hauled off by soldiers and submits meekly to these soldiers, also to Caiaphas and to Pilate. But in John, Jesus does not submit to anyone but the Father. John 7.30, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. If it's not his hour, you can try to take him all day long, but nothing is going to happen. Later on in the same chapter, now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And a few verses before this, in a foreshadowing of things to come, the Pharisees had sent a few officers to arrest Jesus. Verse 45 tells us, The officers then came back to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. You had one job. Go get Jesus. Bring him back here, in handcuffs. But instead, you're thinking about converting to Christianity. That's great. The Pharisees do learn a lesson, though. 
And the next time they go to arrest Jesus, they will send nearly 500 men. But we'll come to that. John 8.20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. In chapter 10, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And not only is it impossible to arrest Jesus, it's also impossible to kill him. In John 10.17, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. In John, Jesus is in charge. No one can arrest Jesus. No one can kill Jesus unless Jesus decides that he would like to be arrested or killed. Keep that in mind for later. If we look at John chapter 3, we see another theme of ascension and glorification here. Not only is Jesus in charge of the situation, but throughout the book of John, he's being glorified by the Father. John 3, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The idea that Jesus would be lifted up or exalted is not strange, but the comparison certainly is. Because Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on a wooden pole, which means that this is a a reference to the crucifixion, when Jesus himself would also be lifted up and exalted onto a cross. And that is not glorious, or is it? Well, let's read on. In John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And our Bibles usually translate that first bit as, You will know that I am He, and that's a fair translation. But the Greek, in the Greek, the He is only implied. Jesus' response is, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. This is a clear reference to the name of God, I am who I am, Yahweh. And so it is in the crucifixion, the lifting up, that they will know that this is Yahweh, and he is who he said he is. This theme comes in even sharper focus in John 12:23. But Jesus answered them saying, "The hour has come that the Son of man should be glorified." Fantastic. We like glory, right? How do we get some of that? Well, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The crucifixion will be a moment of glorification. Jesus goes on in 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When Jesus goes to the cross, he will glorify his Father. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now perhaps this is talking about the ascension, some other event, not the crucifixion. No. This he said 
signifying by what death he would die. So when will, when will Jesus cast out Satan? When we draw all peoples to himself? He will do it at the cross. The cross is a triumph over the enemy and a beacon of light that will pull all the nations to acknowledge Jesus as king. And finally, we see that even in betrayal, Jesus is in charge, and as weird as it sounds, he is being glorified. As we all know, Jesus celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples the night before the crucifixion. In the other Gospels, it's highlighted that Judas goes out and takes the initiative to betray Jesus. But in John's Gospel, Jesus practically sets him up. Jesus dips bread into the communal dish and gives it to Judas, and John tells us that after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. This is no surprise to Jesus. He's in complete control. In fact, he is the one prompting Judas, as if Judas needs to be reminded about his part to play in this play that the scriptures have foretold. Then something very strange happens. In verse 31, So when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. If you were a disciple sitting at that table, then you would be getting very excited right now. Big things are about to happen. And happen immediately, but not quite in the way the disciples had expected. So in sum, in the first half of John's Gospel, we see that Jesus can't be arrested. He can't be killed. He is called by the divine name of Yahweh. And even in betrayal, he is orchestrating events and fulfilling scripture. Throughout his ministry, he has predicted that he will be lifted up in glory. And now, on the night of the Last Supper, he says, the time has come. He will be glorified immediately, but in death. And this brings us, at last, to John chapter 18, where, John, where Jesus confronts the small army that comes out to arrest him. Well, almost. There's one final thing we need to understand to set the stage for this moment. Back at the Passover meal, Jesus predicted that someone would betray him just as it had been foretold in the Old Testament. He said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41, which is David's psalm about the rebellion of his son, Absalom. You can read the whole thing in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 20, but here are the highlights. Absalom, whose name ironically means father of peace, led a rebellion against his father David. And a key member of that revolt was a chap named Ahithophel, who had been one of David's close friends and advisors. He ate at David's table, he shared the same bread, and was his most trusted advisor. Yet he chose to side with Absalom and betray his king. David had to flee Jerusalem, and the account in Samuel is very specific, that he crossed the brook Kidron and ascended the Mount of Olives on the way. In John 18, Jesus and his disciples follow the exact same story arc. Like David and his mighty men, Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem. They cross the brook Kidron. They ascend the Mount of Olives. 
So John is telling us something here as the story unfolds. In the other Gospels, a crowd with swords and clubs comes out to arrest Jesus. Judas kisses him. The ruffians lay their hands on him and carry him off. And Jesus submits to all this in humility. But in John, we see a different and equally true perspective. In John, we get the extra detail that the arresting party was a Roman cohort, which would have been about 480 heavily armed men. The last time, the Pharisees and Sadducees sent a few officers to arrest Jesus, and that did not work out. So, this time, they send a small army. But Jesus is not perturbed by this in the slightest. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who is in charge here? Jesus. This helps us understand what happens next. Peter pulls out a sword and starts swinging. And Peter was not Zorro, so when he chopped off an ear, he was probably aiming for the entire head. Very hard to chop off an ear, if that's your, what you're aiming at. Usually we chalk this up to Peter's impetuous nature. But remember that this is an army of 480 crack troops. What emboldens Peter to strike is that Jesus just flattened that army with two words. Jesus had told his disciples just hours before that the Son of Man was about to be glorified immediately. To the disciples, the revolution seems to have begun. It is time to strike a blow for King Jesus and take up the sword. But to their great perplexity, Jesus says, no. He tells Peter to put the sword away. You might think that Jesus is rejecting kingship with this move. But no, he's embracing it. He is acting in the same kingly way as King David before him. Back in 2 Samuel, after David and his mighty men march out of Jerusalem, over the brook Kidron, and up over the Mount of Olives, a man named Shimei follows them, cursing David. And Abishai, one of David's mighty men, asks for permission to take off his head. King David exercises royal restraint and mercy. He tells Abishai that they need to take the suffering that Yahweh gives to them. To be king is to submit to God. So Jesus tells Peter to abandon the sword. Jesus is acting as king here, just as his forebear, King David. There's a final connection between Jesus and David, which brings us back to the main theme. David and Jesus are both betrayed by close advisors. They flee over the brook Kidron. They ascend the Mount of Olives. Their mighty man wants to chop off someone's head, but they hold him back and submit to God's will. These have all marched in close step, which is what makes the final piece so interesting and challenging. David's story with Absalom ends when he returns in triumph to Jerusalem at the head of an army. The people of Israel recognize him as king again. Well, Jesus returns to Jerusalem too. And the army, in theory, is escorting him. But we all know that Jesus can flatten that army with two words. If he speaks four words, they might be vaporized. 
So there's no question of who is in charge of this army. With these close parallels, John is telling us that Jesus returns to Jerusalem to be recognized as king of Israel, just like his forebearer David. He is about to be lifted up and enthroned. Is that crazy? Yeah, just a bit. But remember, Jesus has told us, the Son of Man will be glorified and glorified immediately. It's about to happen. And that brings us to our third and final section, which is the trial and crucifixion. John assumes you've read the other Gospels, and you know that Jesus was silent and submissive in his trial before Caiaphas. But John is narrating another, equally true perspective, and that lets us see another dimension to Jesus on trial and on the cross. And he does that by including a story that does not appear in the other Gospels. Before Jesus goes on trial, before Caiaphas, John tells us that he comes before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And in this meeting, Jesus is not submissive and he is not silent. John 18, 19, the high priest Annas then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Does Jesus respond submissively? No. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? There are no stupid questions, only stupid people. Ask those who heard of me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Does Jesus apologize? No. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness to the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? This is a fierce Jesus. He is like a lion on a skinny leash. You may think you have him under control, but in fact, that lion is only there because he wants to be there. Eventually, the chief priests and scribes bring Jesus to Pilate, and they have a series of conversations. At the start, Pilate thinks that he is in charge, and by the end, Pilate is terrified. In 1833, begins, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate begins asking the questions. Jesus makes it very clear. No, I will ask the questions in this interview. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now perhaps you've had a conversation with teenagers, or those of you younger kids will have one day, about cleaning up your room. And sometimes that conversation can turn into a debate about the pros and cons of whether one should clean one's room. And if you're on the losing side of that debate, then the last desperate salvo to save face is something along the lines of, but what is a room? And can anyone really understand the definition of clean? Questioning the nature of reality, what is truth? What is a room? What is cleaning? That is their last attempt to get out of an argument with a shred of dignity. Pilate has Jesus flogged, and then the soldiers clothe him in scarlet and crown him with thorns. They mock him by hailing Jesus as king of the Jews. But let's be clear. The joke is on them because the words they speak in mockery 
are true in reality. Jesus wears a crown because Jesus is a king. Pilate hopes that the Jews will be satisfied with a flogging, but they insist on crucifying him. Picking up in 19.7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, which means he was afraid before. Now he's moving on from fear into terror. Who is this person he is dealing with? And he went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And here Pilate plays the power card. He blusters, as anybody who is in theory in charge and wants to exercise authority does, but he's not. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate's convinced. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And the judgment seat, it's important to note here, is a throne. And in the Greek, it is ambiguous about who exactly is sitting on that throne. It could be Pilate. It could be Jesus. All we know is that he sat down in the judgment seat. And either way, we're left in doubt. Are Pilate and the crowd judging Jesus? Or is Jesus on the throne judging Pilate and the Jews? Well, the answer is yes. We all know the rest of the story. Pilate hands over Jesus to be crucified, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. And here he is crucified, lifted up on the cross, just like the bronze serpent of Moses. And the placard above him reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Most people take this to be Pilate poking the Jews in the eye, but it also may be that on some level he believed it. I want to draw your attention to some points that are often misunderstood. First, all the movies we have seen show Jesus carrying a full cross in the shape of a lowercase t. But the word in Greek here probably refers just to the crossbeam or the horizontal piece of the cross. Digging a post hole is a lot of work. And if you're a Roman soldier with lots of Jewish criminals to execute every week, you look for the easy way. So it's probable that he was crucified onto a post or an existing tree. The story of the fall of the human race began because someone ate from a forbidden tree and we all lost access to the tree of life. Jesus dies on a tree so we can have even better food. His body is broken and his blood spilled, but as a result... We have bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. Jesus is like an even more glorious tree of life, but only through the cross. Secondly, it's odd that John would tell us specifically that Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. We usually take this as one of those random things the Bible says from time to time. But First uh, Samuel tells us that David knocked down Goliath with a sling stone, he ran over and finished the job off by chopping off Goliath's head with his own sword. And the final detail in that story, in 1 Samuel 17, is that David took the head and brought it to Jerusalem. 
The giant's full name was Goliath of Gath, or in Hebrew, Goliath Gath. There is a very high probability that the place Golgotha took its name from the burial place of the skull of Goliath Gath. We can't say that with 100% certainty, but even if not, John is certainly making a wordplay here that should remind us that a giant skull is buried near Jerusalem and Jesus is crucified right above it. Now, Jesus has told us throughout John's gospel, he's in charge, you'll be exalted, you'll be lifted up in his death, and to the naked eye, this does not look like glorification. So how is that happening here? Jesus assured us that when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Well, here it is. After Adam and Eve took fruit from a tree that was off limits and fell, God promised that he would fix the problem. He would send the seed of the woman to make things right. He foretold that this seed would have his heel bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. And right here, right now, thousands of years later, the seed of the woman has come. His heel is wounded, nailed to a tree. But he is lifted up over the skull. And if you picture the crucifixion in your head right now, you can see Jesus wounded on the cross, but his foot is crushing the head of the giant. His moment of humiliation on the cross is also his moment of victory. This is Christus Invictus, Christ the Unconquerable. The cross is just one more stepping stone on his ascent into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God the Father and rule as king. This is David's son, betrayed like his father, yet victorious in the end, crushing the head of giants and of serpents. The chief priest said they had no king but Caesar. We say we have no king but Jesus. He was lifted up onto the cross, and he rules from the tree. This is not an application heavy sermon, but I want to leave you with one takeaway. Christ shows us here that it is glorious to give away yourself for others. We are fond of saying that glory belongs to God, and that's true, but he really likes to give it away. Look at how the Trinity glories to give away attention and praise. If you look at the Father, he says, no one's ever seen me. And if you want to know what I'm like, don't look at me. Look at the Son. The Son says, actually, I'm just here for a short time, and then I'm leaving. And it's actually a really good thing that I'm going away, because then the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's much better. When you look at the Holy Spirit, what does he say? Is Well, no, I just testify to Jesus. I build up his body, the church. So we look back again to Jesus, and he says, well, I only do what I see my Father doing. I submit to him. He's the one who deserves the glory. And so on and on. And that's who God is. In our salvation, we are united to Christ, which means we share in his Trinitarian life. When God exalts his Son, he also exalts you. And does he do that so you can soak it all in and hoard it to yourself? No. He expects you to do the same thing that he does. He expects you to give it away. Teachers become wise and knowledgeable, so you can give away that knowledge to students who will hopefully become wiser than you are. Husbands, build up strength and wealth and glory so you can give it to your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands. Give them glory so you can be like Jesus Christ, God himself, who submits to his Father. Parents, give away sleep, money, time, and your very selves to your children so they will hopefully become wiser and godlier and more successful than yourself. Changing a diaper at 2 a.m. may not feel glorious in the moment, but in a way, it really is. Because in God's book, giving yourself away is glorious. That's how he works. That's how he expects you to work. 
This stuff is too glorious for mere talk. We should be writing poems about this and singing songs instead. So I'm going to close with a few stanzas from a hymn by a guy who did get it in the 6th century. Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old. Unto the nations, lo, saith he, our God hath reigned from the tree. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.